All righty. So welcome, everybody. Um, so the, the topic for today's conversation really is around cultural change. Connor had a go at me for the title saying it doesn't actually represent, <laughs> represent the conversation topic for today. That was, and that's my fault. So I was trying to make it a bit more sexy because I think to be honest, if someone said to me cultural change or even really the word culture, my initial inclination is this is going to be fluffy. It's going to be sort of lacking empirical evidence. It's going to be made up. It's yeah, fine, culture is important, but it doesn't have all those other qualities that I would typically look for. So I don't reckon I probably would attend if a cultural session came up. No. However, um, what attracted me to this topic was my conversation with Connor the other day in which you mentioned a couple of things, Connor, that uh, really piqued my interest. One was that it, this, well, one of the themes from your research was around if you want to change behaviour, you need to change the context. Context will help change behaviour. And that, to me, resonated um, very well because a lot of the stuff that I talk to, talk, the psychology I talk about is about how people's behaviour is much more influenced by context than they imagine. So I was particularly interested in that. And the other thing was, yeah, you know, you're talking about the way, the sort of the connection between do we follow a process, do we follow guidelines versus do we use our own objective, our own sort of subjective senses of creativity or, or judgment? And there's and there's quite a lot of issues in that uh, in that interface there. So for those two reasons, I was thinking, oh, actually, this could be quite interesting. So thank you for uh, agreeing to join me in this conversation, Karen. We'll look forward oh. to get into those sort of topics. But perhaps before we kick off, for those of you who haven't met Connor before, do you mind just giving us a little bit of background, perhaps leading up to your PhD, and then we'll jump into the PhD in a sec. Uh, yeah, so um, I've made a, a career really in the project program and PMO space um, over the last sort of 10 to 15 years. And one of the things that I that I noticed was, was the, the thing that, that I could I really didn't understand well enough was people's behavior around uh, around projects and programs. I mean, as a as a kind of project manager, you're you're kind of encouraged to to, to view people as those kind of unpredictable, unpredictable variables that don't really do what they're supposed to do on time or to the right quality and um, and that whose engagement you know you kind of have to force compliance on. And, and I, it, what what really what really um, got me going was I, I was I was running an integration. Program. I was program director for integration of twelve businesses into into one, and um, I put together a program. Having been down there for a couple of months, um, uh, to 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 the the exec team, and I thought I had it um, pretty well nailed down. I was getting you know some good comments from from the execs and had had one on ones, but the CEO dismissed it out of hand, and I I you know it had a payback of 18 months it was all hockey stick from there on in and I'd you know kicked some good goals in the meantime and I I went away just thinking why why did that steer call why did that exec make that decision why, why did they do that on the face of it you know with a rational business case I'd been to the CFO he'd signed off the business plan people had tested the numbers and I you know I, I thought any rational CEO would have would have gone for this um, and I think the kind of clue was in the answer, which was, you know, people don't behave rationally. And, and that, um, that encouraged me to, um, you know, to take up, uh, uh, to, to study. I started doing a PhD at, at, at Melbourne, um, and that was, um, that was sociology. I, I didn't like what I was seeing in sociology, so I wrapped it up as a master's and then um, went on to, uh, to Monash to Behaviour Works to do a, a PhD in behavioural science. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of where I am now. Fantastic. And so the the PhD you've been at now for three to three years. You're fairly oh no, way longer than that. I, I, I'm doing it part time. It's it's um, don't mention it to my wife. Everybody's sick of me to me talking about it. I, I started. Um, I don't even probably want to know. Uh, probably about six years ago, part time. Okay. Yeah. Wow. yeah, yeah. And okay. I've been doing it nights and weekends and. Um, between breaks and contracting gigs, I've, I've sort of got into it. Um, but it's it's uh, the, the the plan is to get it done for Christmas. Awesome. All right. So you're quite far through, and I, I know that you've obviously covered a lot of ground in that. But we're today mm. going to focus on one piece of it, which was a study that you've told me about the other day, where you looked at an engineering large scale engineering business. Yeah. Can you give us a sense of what the firm was and what the hypothesis you were looking at? Yeah, there? so look, I'm happy to go wherever the conversation takes us, but we can start, we can start off here because I've covered a fair bit of ground. Um, so what happened was you had, a, you had a business problem, an engineering based business needed to 
to increase its its product output sixfold. So the capex budget went from let's say 100 million to 600 million overnight. And the, the, there was a new CEO and management team, and and they they rightly picked up culture as being a, as being a barrier. In other words, it was very bureaucratic. Um, it was very traditional. It was very slow moving, uh, and there was no way that we're going to be able to ramp up and spend 600 million the next year because they struggled to spend 100 million um, in, the pre- in the previous years. Um, and there was a very um, it was very hierarchical. Um, it was a very um, traditional approach to, um, to, to to running the business, which and engineering standards which had been proven over decades were were sacrosanct. You know, they they were they were standards that that they just couldn't deviate from. So they so so they they figured they they rightly identified culture as being as being a barrier to performance, and that's that's kind of what I like to see. Um, what worries me about about culture change generally is is where it's ideologically driven um, and and isn't tied to a business problem. You know, um, be it be it race or gender or whatever. It's it's it. I, I think the the um, the interesting thing is to is is to nail it down to a business problem uh, because that that's where you get the the payoff. Yeah, so so in this case, so that business problem, I know that there's some sensitivity around uh, uh, not well, making sure we don't identify the organisation involved. But, but yeah. is, it, is it possible to give us a bit of a sense going from 100 million to 600 million? What what was going on to to cause that sort of big step change? Uh, there was a strategic crisis. If I if I get into what the crisis is, you'll figure out who it is. But there was, there was a there was an external crisis that they needed to respond to. Um, they need, everybody knew that they just needed to ramp up ramp up their spend. Um, they they had underinvested chronically in in their infrastructure over years, and they just needed to. All of a sudden, that was exposed, and they needed to, to do something about it. Okay, so, so, so from, a, from a rational perspective, like there, there was no doubt about the need for this thing. You had the burning platform, if you like, exactly. for example. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So the burning platform for change, and then what they did was they so the, the 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 challenging thing is to figure out so what is it about the culture that's getting in the way, and then what are the levers that you need to pull to get to get that that culture change? I mean, there's a there's an approach that's pretty common, which is you know you send out a survey, you you develop uh, circumplexes, and you go oh you're red or you're green, you know how do we get you into the blue or whatever, and and that then rolls out as a as a process, and that's that's a that's a really bad way of doing things because. It's not obvious what needs to change, and to, to deliver the to deliver the, the cultural change. Yes. Yeah, so, so if we just go back to the business problem uh, for for a sec. So we've we've got this large capex spend, but, but what's happening? Are people then reluctant to spend the money, or reluctant to approve it, or what's what's going on in that in that process? Yeah. I mean, and, and that's that's the nature of the digging down into the problem. So. Um, you had a bureaucratic organization, so you had the um, head of engineering who said, um, look, if you want to get these assets built on time, you should have ordered the materials six months ago because of specialist materials. And um, I'm sorry, the timeline's just going to have to change. Um, so that was, that was a, and that was, that was the use of power as well, which often comes with, um, uh, with culture. Um, in, in effect, what happens was you had, a, you had your culture war between uh, two, two opposing cultures. You had a... a um, a culture that wanted to deliver and innovate, and you had a culture which wanted to to um, keep to a traditional way of doing things. So one of the things that they did was they they insisted on on um, on the old way of doing things, the old materials, the, the old suppliers. Um, they insisted on um, having silos between the, the teams, so that one team had to sign off um, uh, the next the previous team's uh, uh, approval, which, on, on all of which makes sense in a, in a long term business. But if you need to to respond quickly, um, it just was never going to happen. Yeah, and were there when you say they? So I'm sensing that there is part of the organisation that is wanting to stick to these historical processes, but then part of the organisation that wants to move separately. Is that the two camps you're talking about here? Yeah, definitely. And you find that in, in financial services as well. You find subcultures which dominate. So, for instance, you find you can find front office which dominates and goes, "No, I'm sorry, this is the way we do business." Um, and you kind of it's up to you to to cop it. You know, middle, you know, middle and back office have just have to get on with it, um, and you'll find, you know, people on the advice side, very different culture to, um, you know, to people in the front office, and and you get, you can, you, you get a, you get a, you get, it's a bit like a schoolyard, um, you you get uh, pushing and shoving to the point where somebody's the, the the king of the schoolyard, and in in this instance, it was the the engineering department um, who threw their weight around and said, no, nah, our our, our word is 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 law. Um, that's the way you have to do it, and, and uh, there's just no way we're going to sanction you spending that money within that period of time. 
Yeah, and were there, there different incentives? I, think, I can imagine if I'm an engineer and I'm, perhaps my incentive is not to build a bridge that's going to collapse, for example. And so I, yeah. I, I want to be really risk conscious in that context versus someone who might have a more commercial or, or customer centric type set, set of incentives around their job. Was that the case, do you think? So um, it, it wasn't so much incentives as it was, um, it, it largely, it's somewhat had to do with identity and personality. Um, some t- I mean, in an engineering context, most new ideas are dangerous and bad. You, you just don't want to do it because, as you say, uh, the standards for building bridges are, are pretty well set and, you know, materials are tested and they have all sorts of standards and, and something bright, new and innovative. It's just like, no, you, you should, rightly should be suspicious. Um, so, I th- so, so there's been a, something about engineers' identity that makes them um, highly, ra- in a sense, rational and, and, and superstitious, sorry, s- suspicious. Uh, but also personality. You have um, people who are who are low in, in openness, you know, the trade openness. Um, those sorts of people very resistant to um, uh, to new ideas, unless it's forced upon them. Yeah. Did you did you do some personality profiling as part of your study? Uh, I didn't. I didn't do formal personality profiling. Uh, I didn't get them to 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 to, to under, undergo tests, but. Um, of a reasonable, I, I think I don't think I'll be far off the mark with um, with, with some of the uh, some of the leaders' behaviour. Sure, and the identity aspect you noticed there as well. I mean, that's... Yeah. So, for instance, there was another instance where a particular engineer said that um, uh, he 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 thought that the efficiency of a, of, a, of a plant would be in theory should be ninety eight percent. He'd done all the calculations. That was part of his 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 identity as an engineer. Um, uh, but the problem was that that was going to delay getting ninety eight percent was going to was going to delay uh, construction by a, a couple of months. <clears throat> Whereas what was what they the business wanted was to get it up to over to, to roughly ninety five percent and then then leave it. Um, and that that involved two different designs. Um, and but but the the guy who held out the engineer um, he, that was just part of his. He was an engineer, and that was just—it was part of his identity that that you know you wanted a. Why wouldn't you have the most efficient process you could have? Because that's all his training had had, had given him to uh, to believe. And he held out, and he end, ended up compromising. Actually, ended up on like ninety six percent or something. So, um, I think identity is a identity is a is is an issue for um for, for clearly for people's behavior and, and personality. Sure. But, the, but but also um to, to get back to context, you had a you had a. Um, a department which which um, had had ruled the roost and had had effectively di- divided and conquered. You know, different, you know, people didn't work together very well in groups. There were there were silos. So so on, on that basis, this one department is, was able to predominate. So one of the things that the management did was that was they broke down the silos um, and they literally co-located people. Um, they took them away out of their offices and they put together project teams around particular projects. So you would have somebody from engineering, you'd have somebody from construction you'd have somebody from procurement somebody from finance and, and a project manager and they would they would sit in a in a group uh, so that so that the old the old structure of um you know uh, formal meeting rooms and 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 memos uh, just was broken down so it's a physical structure change led to led to behavior change so, so when you say physical structure so you're saying the physical layout of the office where people are sitting in the in the teams yeah that, that, that i mean it's it's i mean you've you, Edgar Schein's work on, on culture talks about um, you know the, the pyramid and, and, and three layers, but one of the, the and there's at the top there's there's a layer which is visible and and, and the physical layer of an office is is, is absolutely cultural. Um, you know some of those symbols around well you know does does you know does it does the uh, the exec have a have an EA outside the door guarding his his you know access to him? Does he have a does he have a private meeting room? Uh, how big is his office and her office? You know, all that stuff is absolutely crucial. Um, you know, our behavior in, in uh, our behavior is influenced by context, and and some of the stuff we're just not conscious of, but it's definitely there. Yeah, and what you also mentioned in that in your um, description there as well was perhaps what sounds like some of the artifacts, like memos or guidelines or those sorts. Yeah, of yeah, things. yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so engineering standards is is definitely an, is a, is an artifact that influences influences behavior. Uh, policies and procedures absolutely influence behavior. Um, and if you want to get behavior change, you need to not just um, change policies and procedures, but you, um, you, you, you know, you need to change a lot of the things that are around them and, and the, the basis on which people use them. I mean, I think one of the issues, so, so if you look at, say, risk management, for instance, and, um, or um, yeah, risk culture, for instance, um, 
I think the first wave has, has focused on policies, procedure, and, and to an extent structure. But the, the thing that the thing that um, I think is less well ex explored, and it's for others to comment, I suppose. But but the, um, the the ethical decision making of the people at the top um, in, in terms of and their behaviour and, and, and using those structures. But what that, what you had here in this engineering business was a was a was a CEO laser focused on getting this getting you know, culture change and getting the stuff delivered on time. Yeah. Okay. But, but did you get down to like, for example, were you looking at changing specific guidelines or changing a specific memo format or th those those sorts of perhaps the micro sort of environmental cues that you might be able to change? Is that well, actually, it, it changed. Well, it, it it was even more fundamental than that. Um, in that they they disregarded. A lot of the, the existing engineering, well, they disregarded the solutions, traditional they, they still had to abide by standards, you know, like the assets had to had to meet outcomes. So the so the standards remained the same, but how they got there was was completely um, open for interpretation and, and, and free for all, whereas it hadn't been before. It was engineering saying this is how you must build it, as opposed to the construction people saying, no, no, we can we can still meet those standards, but in an innovative way. Okay, so it sounds like maybe taking the standards up a level. So rather than being them being specific, you must do A, you must do B, you must be must do C. That's you true. can say what's the principle behind it, and then find whatever way you want to. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think I think you're right. I mean, I think what engineering had been used to doing before was specifying the inputs, um, whereas whereas now they're just going, don't tell us how to do it. We'll we'll still agree to those outcomes uh, because they're because you know safety and reliability and all those sort of metrics are still important, <clears throat> but but let us innovate in terms of how we would get that done. Yeah, so there's a question from Jane. Working virtually, how does this change your thinking on breaking down the silos and co-locating? Co Were they working virtually? When did you do this study? Was no, there was, this was pre-pandemic was pre, um, pre um, and, and um, they had been in the office. So I think, I think it would be easier in, a, in an environment where, uh, where people worked virtually um, because... Um, <clears throat> The, the physical the physical constraints around behavior or physical cues around behavior wouldn't 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 be there so I think it, it potentially would be easier in in, in this environment to to, um, to get behavior to, to, to change yeah there's some upside from the pandemic after all <laughs> well I think um, you know new ways of working um, is a, is a, is an interesting topic um, at the moment uh, but it depends on the extent to which we return to the pre-pandemic environment. I mean, you know, culture is culture is what helps the intern the internal part of the business deal with the external. Now, you know, you had a we had a shift in terms of what happened to the external environment. So culture has had to change. You know, we're we're working we're working uh, more remotely. Um, but when the pandemic, hopefully changes soon and we're all to, to, uh, allowed to physically go back. Um, I'm not sure the extent to which, I just don't know the extent to which virtual working will, will predominate anymore. I'm quite interested in how much specificity there, there is in a set of rules or guidelines or an algorithm and yeah, bubbling along in my head or I haven't quite formulated the thought properly is this thing called algorithm aversion where people tend to be averse to using mechanical decision-making processes particularly when they've got their own expertise. They don't, yeah, they don't yeah. like to follow because it, it sort of says, hey, you don't know what you're talking about. Just follow these steps and do exactly what we tell you and yeah. it will all work out fine. And sure, there's a lot of benefits in having consistency. It reduces noise and all that sort of stuff. But at what point do you get the expert sort of um, oh, okay. sub subjective assessments in there? Yeah, okay. yeah. And sort of, so two, for two things, one is, if I completely disengage that person, they might then not be checking and not, might not be error spotting. They might, there's been might be no vigilance, for example. So that's, that's one. And then secondly, I guess, is the accuracy of the combined integrated process and human judgment I, to optimize that. I probably need to have a bit of input from both, but sort of allowing the best parts of the consistency of the process with the human judgment in there. Yeah. And maybe allowing a little bit of leeway opens up that possibility, but it does introduce some risks as well. Doesn't yeah. it? Well, there was a, a good, I'm sure you're across a good paper by Kahneman and, and, and Gary Klein about naturalistic decision-making and, and the, the conditions under which intuitive decision makes sense versus um, a more formal approach, one of which would be um, um, algorithms. Um, and, and they, 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 they managed to agree that, that basically um, intuition was good in a context where you had 
um, clear feedback and fast feedback. So in other words, if you're a firefighter or, 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 or a pediatric nurse, um, so say a firefighter, you direct, you direct the hose, you can see the effect of uh, whether you're doing well or, or badly instantly. Um, and there's instant feedback. Um, if wherever you're stock picking, um, or, or even worse, you're trying to predict the, you know, put in a new, a new policy um, around say traffic. I mean, good luck. Um, you just, you know, the, the signals are, you've no idea what, what the cues coming back from your decision can take years to, um, uh, to, to, to unravel. And, and, and it's not even clear that it, it's down to, 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 your, to, your, uh, to your action. And um, I was lucky enough to sit in a room with um, some, some senior ex-politicians and ex-bureaucrats <clears throat> who were looking at um, uh, decision-making around new transport pricing. In other words, you know, the way they have in London where you've got a CBD charge and, it, um, and other, other, other capitals as well. Uh, and it's, you, you get charged on, on time and distance as opposed to like just a general tax on everybody. Um, and the, the, um, the, most, the, the, the strangest thing I saw was that the politicians used heuristics or, or rules of thumb. They, they didn't look at, the, there was the telephone directory briefing document, which was fabulously done by, by, by uh, government bodies. Politicians didn't look at it at all. They just used gut feel. Um, now there's a, you know, th there are places for gut feel and and um, and not, and, and the context matters. Yeah. Um, but I saw senior politicians using gut feel to to to, to discuss to, to to look at a a really complicated subject like do we, do we change the the pricing on the, uh, the the way we price road usage? Yeah, but but going back to your engineering example, that's. So as opposed to the Kahneman and Klein uh, paper, which when I read it, it was more about, well, here are the circumstances, as you, as you described, here are the circumstances yeah, yeah, yeah. that feel works, here are the circumstances in which actually expertise can be developed by a human and fine, it's, but it's sort of binary, it's, it's one or the other, versus actually that, that point of integration. And there was a, a paper that uh, tickled my fancy where they had an algorithm, and it was a relatively simple, straightforward algorithm that we know in many cases actually does better than human judgment. And yeah. they gave that to someone who had expertise and said, well, you can use this yeah. uh, if you wish. And what happened, of course, was that people tended to override that algorithm with their own judgment, and it tended to be worse than if they'd just gone with the algorithm. Yeah. Anyway, what, so, which we've seen hundreds of studies say, say that in many cases. However, when the interesting thing about that particular study was they said, all right, well, what can we do? If, if this is human behavior that we give them rules and guidelines and they just disregard them and do their own thing and follow their gut instinct or whatever, yeah, yeah. how can we get them closer to this doing the algorithm, doing following the guidelines thing? And what they discovered is if, if you gave people a little bit of leeway to sort of say, well, the guideline says X, but you can go X plus five or X minus five if you want, or you can tweak these three considerations out of these 20, those little things. And what happened was that even though those tweaks actually made the algorithm worse, they would have been better <laughs> making no tweaks. Yeah. However, by giving people the opportunity to make those little tweaks, they were more likely to then go with the algorithm. So there was All a benefit right. overall in yeah, cool. going slightly worse than the algorithm but yeah. by capturing the piece of engagement. So I do yeah. wonder whether yours, thinking about your um, the guidelines and then allowing some more discretion in there, means that people are then more likely to use the guidelines. If that's perhaps, do you, do you agree? Does that make sense to you or not? Uh, so, they, so they stuck to the guidelines in terms of the outcomes that, that, were, that were expected of the assets. So there was no negotiation around, you know, it's got to be safe, it's got to perform to a certain level. Um, and there was a lot more engagement um, in, in, they had because they were able to um, they were able to do their own design basically and not have not have engineering specified. Um, I think the issue was that <clears throat> I, I think algorithms work work well in in certain defined situations and you know we we, we know those what that what that looks like. Um, but there's a whole there's a whole um, raft of situations where you know. Um, algorithms, checklists, and, and procedures just don't work, or are outperformed by, by heuristics. I mean, I was, I was reminded of the, um, you know, Sully Sullenberger, the guy who landed the, the plane on the on the Hudson. Um, he he used a heuristic to um, to, to land a plane. Now, I, I can think of fewer places richer in data than, than the cockpit of a modern aircraft. It's just like you've got everything, literally everything at your fingertips. You know, and, and not only that, you, you're, you're, people are well trained, and they've got procedures for absolutely every contingency. 
Um, and he was a super experienced pilot and he used a, a heuristic to land it because what, what he did, hey? What, what was the heuristic? If in danger, land on a, on a, on a river? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's called the gaze heuristic. So it's, it's similar to how you catch a ball. Um, if it's you know if it's flying over the top of your head, so what he did was he he his co-pilot beside him was was uh, diligently going through the the checklist um, for 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 how to what to do in in such situations, and 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 Sully realised there was just no there wasn't enough time to get through that checklist because by the time they found the answer he would have crashed into something. Um, he he he'd taken off from 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 New York I think it was. Um, it just so people don't know the case, and he there was a bird strike, um, and I think all the all of his engines were uh, one of them, and then the second the, the second engine um, was 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 destroyed. So see, he was he was cruising, but he needed to know whether to the, he could see another airport off the right hand side, which is LaGuardia, and um, so he didn't know whether he would he could circle back and get back down to, to New York or whether he would make it across LaGuardia. Um, without much, without much, without any power at all, he 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 realised he wasn't going to get back to um, uh, to to Newark. But he but he he, he he looked at LaGuardia Airport. He he could see the control tower of LaGuardia Airport in one of the the window frames um, in the cockpit. And what his his heuristic was, if that um, that control tower was rising in the window pane or flat. He was going to be able to make it because he because the plane was climbing. When he looked at the at the control tower, he's beg your pardon. If it was falling, he was he was going to make it. What he what he saw was the control tower was rising within the window pane. He was he was he could control on hands on the stick. He he, he realized in an instant we're not going to make it to the radio. He didn't look at any of the instruments. Um, he didn't go through any checklists, and he just and the I'll, I'll send you a link of the. Um, of, of the, uh, the the chat between between the tower and, and, and him, it's just amazing. He just said, "No, we're going the river," and and just it's just instant. Um, and heuristics are fantastic um, in in those sort of situations. And he did, as I say, he didn't use any data at all. It was just what's called a gaze heuristic, which is he looked out the window, he saw that the tower was 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 rising in 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 in, the, in that in that window, and he he, he decided to ditch the plane. Yeah, so so perhaps that's um, that's a good segue to say what some of the, what are some of the broader conclusions from this research. Then, um, sorry, I'm just see there's an analysis paralysis and how do you come back? <laughs> well, all right, let, why don't we tackle that one first, and I'll come back to to, to my question. Um, what's your response to that, to Theo's? Yeah, it's 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 hard to know without knowing the context, but but it, it sounds like that, that that's an environment where where making a mistake is 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 heavily punished. Um, um, so that there's some big disincentives for um, for getting stuff wrong, and in 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 um, in many situations, um, yeah, elaborate thinking is 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 the right way to go, uh, because you can get things wrong. Most new ideas are are, are bad, um, and generally quick action is is is. Is um, is riskier than than doing things more slowly. I think it depends on the context. Um, if you have a if you have a um, or and the business problem, if you um, if there's some clearly if there's some business downsides from 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 overanalyzing, I think it's worth exposing what they are and and, and looking at a different way of solving it. Is there is there a specific you have in mind, Theo? That that uh, that yeah, I was going to say. I mean. It's a great example because it's life or death. But yeah, yeah, a lot of people will go to I need more data, I need more data, I need more data before they make a decision. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As more as the decision gets more and more important, there is um, a tendency to ask for more and more information to make that decision. Yeah. Right? So whether it's a life or death thing, um, the example you just provided. Or whether it's a project and we're going to invest twenty million dollars to, yeah. to build or whatever, or anything, um, how do you set up a framework to get people to say, okay, we've analysed it to a certain degree, we can keep asking for more and more and more, but then you you've got like kind of the diminishing diminishing marginal returns kicking in, right? Yeah. How do you set up frameworks to combat that? You know, I don't think you can prevent it, but you can just try and, you know, 
combination. Yeah, yeah. Well, the theory would say that that people aren't, um, they just haven't found the answer that they're looking for in, in the analysis. It's not that they need more analysis, they just need potentially different analysis. Um, so, so there's a, when, so if you accept that people use heuristics or, or, or mental shortcuts to, uh, to make decisions, um, there's an interesting article by Yulia Crossett, uh, signed by Jonathan Haidt, which is the, the emotional dog and its rational tail. Um, you know, they, they, people are people make decisions that largely aren't rational and, and looking for they're looking for justification in the data as opposed to as opposed to um, you know real numbers. So, so it's it sounds like you've got a bunch of people who or where you have a bunch of people who haven't found the right answer, and they're just looking for more analysis to 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 get them to the point where they go, ah, I knew that all along. That's, you know, you've finally, you've finally done proper analysis, whereas all you've done is, 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 is matched up with the heuristic that they had in the back of their head anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. That, I, mean, I actually, um, one, one of the topics that I run is about dealing with information overload and noise. And, and yeah. this is one of the questions that comes up. And it's actually interesting what you say, because some of the things resonate with and, and quite closely connect with that. I mean, what I'm looking at, I guess, in that is to say, well, as Theo's pointed out, you get these rapidly diminishing marginal returns past the first, second, third biggest points. Yeah, yeah. Which is not to say, do I need to look at point 10 and point 11 and point 12? Because frankly, until I've done enough work, I don't know whether that thing that I'm going to find actually is the most important thing. Yeah, I I have. But once I've identified what the most important things are, to go looking at point 17, 18, 19, 20, probably it's going to you can end up with a dilution effect of those things actually then dilute the impact of the biggest things, and you get that tapering of decision making accuracy, which I think is what you're referring to there, because it's just my confirmation bias now. It's it like, is, yeah. Yeah, I, I've got the answer. It's not the answer I wanted. Let's keep looking for more things. Exactly. I get, I get the answer that I wanted. I think I think I think that's what it is. I, ultimately though, um you need um you would need different decision makers. Um, and a, a because you know structure structural influence is everything. If you have a different bunch of people around around the table, you get you'll 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 get you'll get different answers. Um, it's it's not around you can say, oh, we'll we'll put, you know, we'll limit the number of iterations on this sort of analysis. But you'll always find somebody who says, yeah, that's that's option that's option two. But can we have option two A? And we're still looking at two options, right? And can we have option two B? I mean, you know, people will find a find a way around that. You end up you still end up doing like eighty iterations of the same bloody analysis. And yeah. and it's it's that's it's that there's something in the environment which says that um, either. Um, um, I, I've largely got the power, and I haven't found you haven't given me the answer that I want. Um, or else um, there, there there's a uh, there's some fairly severe sanctions around around um, being seen to not act the way the boss would expect you to act, or to, in some ways to get it wrong. Yeah, and also when you put people in studies and give them more and more information, so what what does giving them more information do? Well, you end up with a fairly linear relationship with their confidence. The more information they have, the more confidence they get. So you can understand that if I get more confident, my boss gets more confident, the board gets more confident, we're all getting more confident. But decision-making accuracy doesn't continue up at that same trajectory. It sort of tape, it tapers right off. Yeah. So we're, we're just basically investing in confidence, but not necessarily in accuracy as we get into that sort of all those marginal pieces and do more and more and more analysis. Yeah, well, as I say, I saw some very senior people um, Make some very big calls based on very little information. Um, it's it's it, with the right people around the room. You can, you don't have to do a huge amount of analysis. As I say, the, this this was this this. Uh, I think it'll eventually go their way. But this was around um, pricing uh, traffic uh, car use in in Melbourne, um, and some politicians uh, made some very on the basis of a couple of hour discussion without without having read the the detailed modelling that there was there was endless amounts of modeling and business case scenarios and they, they didn't refer to it at all right. um and they were quite happy to quite happy to uh, to make a decision yeah yeah fair enough so hopefully, hopefully that's um just out of curiosity sorry simon how far away were they from what was recommended by the experts uh like, like 180 degrees <laughs> <laughs> So there were so 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 the um, there was a particular uh, and and I think this I think we need to be a bit careful too. There was um, the bureaucrats were um, were a little bit upset with the politicians because they were going oh we've done all this fantastic work they haven't looked at it um, 
they're just shooting from the hip. You know, they should be taking a more rationalist approach to, to decision making. Um, and and actually, what what was really happening was that that um, the politicians, the, the, the bureaucrats, have fallen in love with the with the detail of their proposal, and the rational people in the room were actually the the politicians because they were detached, and they were going, yeah, I'm not convinced. Um, so the politicians were, <clears throat> the, I mean, Dan Andrews um, cut the whole thing down in, in a sentence, and he's basically saying we're not asking people to pay for roads that they've already been they've already paid for, and that, that was that that's a heuristic, you know, that is like you know we're we're just not going to do that. Um, so, so regardless of, of the, 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 you know, volumes of, of, of data that, that had been crunched, they just went, no, we're not doing it. <laughs> and in fact, the interesting thing was, um, without revealing names, there was a, there was a, a right-wing um, ex-senior politician there. His, his view was the issue was not pricing traffic, but, but immigration. Because he said, uh, we need to have stricter controls over migration because um, when you get population growth, you therefore get traffic growth, and that, that will lead to congestion. So I think the answer is migration. Um, so again, nothing to do with the analysis or, or, the, or, or engaging with the brief that, that, that they've been given. Interesting. Okay, well, um, I, I was going to say I wanted to be conscious to leave a bit of time for any more questions that come through, but. I was interested to see what further connections you can draw from the research that you did or the work you did with that engineering organization and then more broadly. So we've already looked at one, which is potentially the use through um, uh, designing virtual or back to the office type scenarios. But yeah, what, what else do you draw from that engineering study that you can see applications for changing behavior, changing culture more generally? Yeah, well, I, I, I'm really interested in, in, in leadership decision making now because, because one of the things I saw during that case study was that the, the engineers, the project managers really didn't have much of a chance in terms of, of resisting the, the way that the, the top team wanted to go. Uh, I, I, I explored with them in over hours of, of, of interviews what went through their mind as they were faced with a change towards, you know, uh, different working arrangements, um, different ways of building things. Um, how, how the job would be impacted. And basically they didn't have an awful lot of, um, those people who resisted um, got ground out uh, because they, what happened was you, people who are, there are a bunch of people and, and I've had a look at their profile. I've done the, this, the, the, the personality profile of, of, since people who comply straight away. So you'll get a bunch of, in any culture change that you'll get a bunch of people who get on board straight away. Um, and there's, there's, there's um, debate in the theory, but basically people who are agreeable and conscientious will, you know, the Milgram experiment, you know, giving electric shots, that, that was agreeableness and conscientiousness. You'll also find people who are low in openness will, will kind of just follow authority because like they delegate effectively the you know, in, environment search to, to, to people in authority. So you get, you'll get a bunch of people straight away who'll just get on board and go, yeah, I'm doing that. And uh, what happens is then is, that is because of um, uh, senior management and the people who are already on board, you'll get, um, quite a bit of pressure on the people who are holding out. And that, that's, that is, for want of a better expression, emotional work. People start to lose sleep, uh, they become stressed, and the, the burden of pushing back um, finally gets too much for them to bear. And, and, and they either compromise or comply or else they leave. But basically, large-scale culture change, as, as I saw there, is a pretty brutal and, and Darwinian affair. You know, you, it, it, it really um, grinds down on people pretty hard and, and you know, people have got to get on with it. So, so in that context, um, um, I, would, I really then became, I, I should have been more interested in, in, in people's plight around, around being forced to do things by corporations because you know, we've all been there. Um, but um, I was really interested in decision-making on, on behalf of the people, in, the people at the top, leadership decision-making. And the extent to which that is that is ethical or not, I think ethical decision making is is a really is is an unexplored area, um, and I think those ethics, I think what happens in ethical decision making is you get a clash of of two heuristics, you know, you get you get two rules of thumb which, which 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 clash, so uh, and 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 often the, the sort of social the social pressure is is the one that prevails. So the two rules of thumb are what is what I think is the right thing to do versus what I think is the commercial thing to do or the social. Well, yeah, let me let me take, take an extreme example. Um, there was a study done on on um, 
on German police during, during World War II or afterwards in World War II. They, these were middle-aged coppers who were just literally conscripted into the army. Um, and they had to, um, and they were, you know, ordinary people. Uh, and they ended up um, in firing squads, um, killing prisoners of war and, 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 and Jews. So it's a pretty horrific um, situation. And most of them suffered horribly as a result. I mean, it's, it's psychologically suffered horribly as a result. Now, they they weren't amoral people by any means, um, you know, uh, but they had two heuristics uh, running at the same time. One is like, thou shalt not kill, basically. So that was, a, and for coppers, you know, that was, despite what you might think, that was, that was important. But the other one was um, don't break ranks, which is I'm in this, I'm part of this, this group and, 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 I'm part of this machine, and and everybody else around me seems to be doing this. So so I the social pressure on them to conform, um, it led to them doing, you know, horrible things. And, and I and I think, and I'm not that's an extreme example, but I think to, to a lesser extent you find that in 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 boardrooms, um, you find a, a a kind of social pressure to to behave one way, and yet their their inner inner compass is saying, I don't think this is right. Um, but but social pressure um, could, can can push people, uh, or, or and, and that social pressure can some of it can be motivated by incentive, uh, um, but but kind of ethical decision making at the top I think is is where the leverage is to be applied not so much through the rank and file because once the machine gears up I think it's very difficult for individuals to uh, to push back. Yeah, I've got a question coming through from Jane, which we'll get to in a second. I, I just want to pick up one point that um, I think connects with what you've just described there, which was the um, the ash experiments that you might be aware of from, I don't know, back in the 60s or something, where they got people around a table, they had to measure, they had to assess the length of lines. Do you, have you seen this study? Yeah. 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 And, and for those of you who haven't come across it before, there might be nine people would all get the question wrong. And then and they're all stooges who have been brought in an experiment to deliberately get it wrong. And then the real person is the 10th person. And how do they respond? Do they respond by following everybody else in the crowd or do they go with what their eyes are showing them, which is that actually all those people were wrong and maybe they should say something different. And what that experiment showed was that not in all cases and not everyone, but for most people, some of the time, they're influenced by that group. But interestingly, they, they, were interest, they were influenced more than they thought and not necessarily deliberately. Mm -hmm. So the social impact had impacted their decisions often beyond their awareness. They're following yeah. the crowd even though, oh, no, I, I actually thought A was the right answer. Yeah, yeah. sure you did. Right? Yeah, but, that, but they're not saying that. To, they're not deliberately lying. That They genuinely thought, oh, no, really, maybe, maybe, oh, yeah, possibly yeah. A is right. No, yeah. not yeah, well, I mean, that's what I saw in, in, in this case study, too, is, is that people often weren't aware that that context was influencing their behavior. Yeah. They just weren't aware of it yeah. uh, because it's it's it, it operates on on habits we've got. It operates on subconscious um, and it operates on sort of a, a web of heuristics we've got in our head. They're just just not aware of it, mm. uh, so which is why it's, which is why it's most powerful, because if you change structure, you can change people's behavior without them without them realizing it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree, agree completely. Should we turn to Jane's question? Do you have any suggestions for merging super funds and their quest to develop the culture of a new company? How to best merge, or manage, sorry, the manage the transition or merge com companies in general? Yeah, it's a great question, Jane. Um, so I think, so, so in culture change, I like to look at the, the business problem. So, so you, it's best if you tie it to a. So what's what's the what's the problem we have here? You need a burning platform for change to. An integration in itself, if they're in the same industry with same sort of same sort of culture, then um, you'd have to you'd have to work hard to figure out what was the um, what's the risk. Um, I would imagine that in in, in integration. Um, so so you're familiar with Price's law, or if you're not, so, um, Simon. So Price's law says that half the output is 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 delivered by the square root of the number of people. Um, and it's it's there's, there's a fair bit of data to support that. So in a thousand person organization, this would say something like 33 people are doing half the work. And um, I think, it, and and we've all thought we were, we all think we're proud of those 33, right? <laughs> we all look around and go, yeah, I can I can fully accept that. Um, but um, and there there is some evidence to support that. I think I think in integrating to 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 uh, to businesses, you want to identify the 33. <laughs> make sure you got them locked in <laughs> because they're the people who will leave because they're, they're the really good people who work their asses off and who are, who've got a lot of skill. And um, the other 900 and 
whatever it is, uh, 967. Yeah, you, you could probably care less about it. <laughs> I don't mean not at all, but I, but I think they're the, they're the people who you kind of uh, potentially don't need to worry as much about. Well, maybe we can throw this one back to Jane if you're there, Jane. What issue or what business critical issue are you seeing that you think the, the merging has to be conscious of or, or to, to manage correctly? Um, to me, it's maintaining innovation of the funds. So as you merge, there's a lot of resources that will look at, um, you know, the merged entity and how we transition to that. I guess to me that innovation bit, how do you maintain that during a period of um, integration? Yeah, I, I, it's probably, um, that's probably going to be too complex. I would imagine, I would have thought the, um, an alternative approach is to how can you integrate as quickly as possible so you get back to business as usual and, and, and innovate. And I, I think innovating during a transition, I think um, you've got to look at the, the organization's capacity to, to absorb all of that. Mm. I think you'd have existing um, innovations in place and, and um, you know, it takes a long time for innovation to come through in financial services. So you leave, let your existing innovations run through and, and get, the in, get the integration done as quickly as possible so, so that you mm. get, get back to business as usual. But the, but, but the um, innovations come from innovative people and, and um, I'm, I'm tipping that they'll be part of those 33. Um, so so if, if you can hang on to the innovative people, that would be a, I don't, that would be a good first step, I think. Yeah, there's a, a study that I've, gosh, I, I can't remember when I read it, so I'm probably going to not get it completely right. But I'm, as I recall it, what they did is they took key decision makers, CEOs and, and sort of high level execs, and they measured some aspects of their decision making. I think it was around to what extent were they more innovative versus were they more sort of standard and more procedural, that sort of thing. And they had a bunch of measures of the stress of the, that the senior, senior executives were under. So they, they were subjective assessments in their own survey responses, but I'm pretty sure they also asked the spouse, often mm. wide, but possibly husbands or partners or whatever, mm. how stressed they thought the senior executive was in their home environment with the kids or whatever. Uh, anyway, so they had all these measures of stress and then they had all these measures of the level of innovation and creativity and willing to take risks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and so you end up with this sort of inverse relationship that the level of stress that these people were under then intended to be associated with a lower level of creativity, which would mm. suggest, and that, I mean, that's more broadly, I guess you see that with creativity. You don't get a lot, lot of creative response. You don't get creative thinking anyway by saying, right, you're going to be creative and you're going to do it in the next three minutes. Right? You, you've, got, you've got to allow. Uh, stress tends to be an antithesis of sort of at least the thinking. It can be a, obviously can spur action, but but in terms of the thinking. So that would, to me, suggest or add weight to your suggestion that let's get the integration done yeah. because that would reduce the burden of stress of everyone in the organisation that then would allow them to open up for that piece of sort of more creative yeah. thinking. Yeah, I think... Um, yeah, I agree, Simon. I think, Jane, um, I mean, one of the things that causes us stress is the extent to which we can ignore stuff. Um, <clears throat> we go, we, this, there's, there's so many cues available to us in our normal life that, that you have to ignore most of it. Um, and that's why routine policies and procedures really help because you, you, you've pre-made those decisions. Um, in, a, in an integration um, of two corporations, you'll have at least for, for a period of time, a point at which how much of this can I ignore? How much, how much is different? Um, and that, that will cause, that in itself will cause stress. The kind of um, the complexity around, well, and I think that's been part of the problem, one of the problems with, with, with COVID is that things that we took for granted are no longer can be taken for granted. And that causes us stress because we go, well, hang on, what else could possibly change? Um, it, it just makes us, it makes the, the taking for granted, which is really important for us, um, it throws that up in the air. And I think, I think that's also likely to be a case in an integration where you've got, you know, two bunches of people who don't quite know um, what's, what's, what's real anymore. I mean, in, in a sense, you know, if, if you're part of an organization and you, you've bought into the, you know, the, the vision and the culture and, and now it's changed, well, hang on, did, was I... Was, it, was that all just bullshit in the past? Does, 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 like, not only does it change the future, it changes the past as well. Um, it changes your, changes your vision of what you're doing now, what you thought you were doing before, and what you're like to do in the future. So it's hugely stressful, which, which is why I, I think, you know, getting it done quickly and in, in, a, in, a, um, 
in a program like way is is, is will help people what have you witnessed jane do you think innovation is dropping off no, not necessarily at all. Um, it was just, I guess, something to be conscious of, mm. I think, um, because there's a lot of uh, changes that are happening in the industry um, that, you know, super funds will need to be on the front foot about. Um, so it's just making sure that things are evolving. I, I think there's small steps that you can take in these sort of times to keep innovation or keep your mind thinking broader to bring in those innovative thoughts. Um, like, yeah. like what sort of things do you have in mind? Oh, just it, like today, participating in a oh, discussion yeah. that is quite uh, different to, you know, regular discussions just opens your mind to different ideas and um, possibilities. So, you know, it's something that you're still gathering thoughts on and gathering ideas about. And so that, you know, you've got that, um, knowledge base when you come to you know after the integrations occurred sort of thing you know mm. yeah or that's... that you could put in place along the way that are more BAU sort of things so you know yeah. you can tweak or optimize what you're currently doing yeah and and Connor for information Jane's in Queensland so she hasn't had to worry about COVID there's no problem there at all <laughs> <laughs> good for you until the borders open up yeah yeah, yeah. can we bring it in for you <laughs> Uh, fantastic. All right. Well, we're almost out of time. So perhaps um, kind of any sort of final words and sort of big ticket conclusions you've drawn from this research, something you think we should follow up? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I think that's set me up a little bit too much. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Apologies. Oh, look, I, I, it, structure was, change structure is the big thing for me. And, and um, we're, we're, most of us can't push back against those structures. So I think ethical decision making is, is, is where it's at. Yeah, okay. And um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Oh, I'm on LinkedIn, probably the, the simplest. Okay, no, that, that sounds good. We're all on LinkedIn now. This is a LinkedIn event, so that sounds good. Yeah. Cool. Well, if there's nothing else, we can't see anything else in the chat, so I will thank Theo and Jane for participating and Connor for your time as well. Thanks, Simon. And we'll close it off, and this will be available as a podcast for anybody else. So um, thank you very much and uh, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thanks, Simon. Thank you both very much. Thanks,